Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of WTF Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Brialis, and I'm with my prestigious co-host, Dr. Raheem Young. How's it going, my brother? I'm doing well, man. How you doing tonight? Oh, yeah, doing great, man. And happy belated birthday to you, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> to, to you as well, you decide. Yeah, man, we're two Sagittarius over here, so we, uh, we're having a good time. So, appreciate you, bro. Uh, also, we're pleased to announce we have a special guest, uh, Alan Stevens. How's it going? Pretty good, thanks, guys. I'm uh, looking forward to having a chat with you. It's been a little while since we last caught up, uh, Sir Royce. <laughs> yeah, yes, it has. We definitely enjoyed our conversation before. Uh, so, yeah, so without further ado, Alan, uh, tell us you know, how many kids you got, uh, what are their ages, and also what do you do for a living or for a purpose? Okay, well, I've got... Um, uh, three sons who I raised on my own. They presently, though, they're uh, they're grown up. My youngest one is uh, 34. The uh, next one up is 32, and the oldest one is just going on. Sorry, uh, 42. I should say, and the oldest one is just going on to uh, 43. So uh, I've now got uh, six grandkids, though, two uh, children to each of the boys. So, and uh, what I've been doing is. Um, that was a question you asked, wasn't it? Yeah. Sorry, I just got sidetracked thinking about their ages and forgot the first, the other part of your question. So this is what parenthood does to you. <laughs> the first thing to go is your, your memory. Um, now, my oldest uh, grandchild now is, uh, he's uh, seven, going on 17 on Christmas, on uh, Christmas Eve, and my youngest has just turned uh, one year old. So uh, it's a full range between their four boys and uh, two uh, granddaughters. Uh, what I do for a business, I'm a profiler. I teach people how to read each other, to understand each other's personalities and their uh, emotions, to be able to build stronger relationships, which is a skill I picked up later in life that I would have loved to have had when I uh, was raising the boys. It would have been great, great help uh, to me back in those days. Now that's, that's pretty interesting, Alan. So how did you get into that uh, business? Mainly because I was shocking at it. I'd been through uh, two divorces. I'd been through a lot of uh, relationships. Mm -hmm. I'd even uh, had the displeasure of a couple of business partners who emptied the bank out at different times. And uh, it was through sheer necessity. And especially with the boys at the time being 4, 11 and 12, I realised that I needed to learn more about them as we're going along especially when they hit their teens. The youngest one was in the teens. Because as I say, the oldest child is the one who makes the rules. The, and the rules are made for number two, and the third child completely ignores the rules. And so I needed the skills to be able to read the boys as they were growing up, but also in business as well. So that's how it all came about for me. Well, that's cool. So, like, are you able to, um, are you able to read yourself the same way you can read other people? Yeah, because when it comes to your personality and the way this works is, and it may sound a bit woo-woo to people when they first hear it, when I talk about your facial features telling me your personality, which means I don't need to ask you a single question. All I have to do is see your photograph. And uh, if you think about it, you lift weights, you're going to build uh, muscles in your body, you know, the repetitive movement of a, of, a, of a muscle. And it slowly builds. Same thing with uh, what we feel inside, we express outwardly. So our emotions, we display those over and over so you put that together, everything that we feel inside, we express outwardly. So when we're thinking and concentrating, we're going to be pulling expressions while we're working and thinking about things. And that continual repetition of the movement of the muscles is going to create ridges and crevices 
that give away your personality. And so that's the first aspect. So I've got your photograph, I've got your personality. And then when I'm talking to you, I've now got your body language and uh, expressions that give away uh, what you're uh, feeling, whether I've read you right, and uh, are you telling me the truth? Now, that was a skill I would have loved to have had when my boys were much younger, <laughs> but it works well with my grandkids. How so? How does it work with your grandchildren? Well, example. You, you watch their expression, watch their body language, and you can pick up whether they're telling you the truth. And knowing whether it's actually that their emotions are a little afraid or that whether they're actually trying to conceal something. So, and it's, it's not just looking at them and going, oh, they're telling a lie, but it's recognising something's not right here, now I need to confirm. And by asking a couple of questions, you can then get the confirmation. Were they just wondering you know, how to express themselves? Were they fearful of um, uh, you know, just a uh, uh, lack of confidence? Or were they actually trying to conceal something? And so any parent who has the skills, it means their life is going to be a lot better with their kids. You're able to put the right boundaries in place for the kids. And one of the problems we have today is uh, not enough boundaries for the kids. And they, they're like a, a boat without a rudder. It doesn't know where to steer, and that's why we need to put boundaries in place. So children thrive on that. They test us all the time, not to uh, break us, but to see if we will hold. And so having strong boundaries, keeping those in place, the kids then uh, have some direction on where they're heading, and it makes their life so much easier. And they do, they might fight you at first, but uh, if you hold, they will respect you, and you have a strong relationship with them well into their adulthood. So how um, can you describe yourself before, like you picked up these skills? What type of father were you before this? <laughs> totally lost is the best way to put it. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I was when I grew up as a kid, my father died when I was uh, very young. So I was only three years old. But my mother, I think she had an innate ability to read people because she would make comments. And I swore to God that even God was uh, fearful of her that she would say something and it would come to pass. And so I always towed the line from there. But of course, when I had my boys, um, I didn't have the gift that she had. So the more that you're able to read the child, first of all, understand their personalities, that way you know how to talk to them in the way that they need to be spoken to. That way you have better communication with them. And in that communication, then you'll get more responses back that will tell you whether you've read them right or not and uh, whether something's going on. I always say to people, you've got two ears and two eyes and one mouth. Use them in that proportion. But when you're using your mouth, ask questions. Ask as many questions as you possibly can and then uh, reflect that back to them. When you do make a statement, the statement really is another question. Well, what I'm hearing you saying is this. Is that right? And get them to confirm whether you've understood them right because our job as parents is to tune our transmitter into their receiver, not the other way around. If we talk, our job is to make sure that they understand us. It's not their job to understand us because we're the ones who want to get that message across. So the more we can read them and understand them and talk to them in that way, we're always going to have a stronger connection with them. And that's what I've learned, especially with uh, uh, my uh, uh, grandchildren now. The stronger you bond, you connect with them. And the grandfather's role is completely different to a father's role. So that gives you an advantage as well. It's interesting. So, uh, Alan, you mentioned your dad uh, passing when you were very young. Mm. Uh, who would you say uh, stepped into that role as a, as a father figure for you? 
uh, as you went through your adolescence and your adult life? Virtually uh, no one. I had um, uh, my mother's brother, one of my uncles, lived out on a farm well away from us, so I very seldom saw him. Um, I was very young at that age when uh, my grandfathers uh, didn't really connect with uh, the kids that much. My uh, mother's uh, uh, sister's husband, so a father-in-law, sorry, uncle on the other side uh, through marriage, uh, he was the only one who was really around, but he didn't like much of me. And I even at my uh, engagement party at the age of 23, told my first fiance that she could do better than me. So I didn't really have much of a role model on the way up. So I was uh, very much a loner. And that's so it gave me an an empathy and an understanding for a lot of the kids that are growing up today without fathers, knowing because my mother or my father died. So my mother really didn't say much about my father and definitely never anything derogatory. Whereas couples today where they're breaking up, most of the kids are staying with their uh, mothers. And of course, there's a lot of uh, comments made about uh, the ex. And when that happens, that affects the kids. I was just telling the child that half of them is no good. And this is one of the reasons why bagging your ex does not do any good for your uh, relationship with your kids. You may think you're uh, rubbishing your partner, but really you're breaking down the relationship that you have with your, with, with your children. And that's something I've seen in so many relationships. So um, what do you feel like the disconnect is between, um, well, I guess like in relationship now, that so many of them fall apart. Well, with the um, <clears throat> with relationships, there's a whole myriad of things as to why couples break up. There's a lot of expectations that are put on um, our lives today, the things that we're supposed to have, all the material stuff. The uh, fact that most of us grew up without a rite of passage. Girls are a little bit closer to having a rite of passage because they usually have other women around, whereas uh, so many of the boys are growing up in uh, families where the father's either emotionally or physically absent. So the boys are, are quite lost in that. They don't know their role of, uh, in the, you know, going from boyhood into manhood. And you need men around you. There's an old saying that um, it takes a village to raise children. And that is so true. And that's one thing that I realised with uh, my three boys. Their mother went out to find herself, so I kept the three boys. As I jokingly say, I gave her the sports car so she could get there faster, and I, I kept the boys, which was the best deal I ever made in my life. And uh, oh, by the way, they did drive me absolutely insane by the time they got to 21. The grey hair had really set in because, as they say, baldness and grey hair is hereditary. It's caused by kids, and they're not kidding. And so with that, uh, the uh, I realised that by having the boys around me, it gave me a stronger connection, and I never rubbished their mother. And that actually cemented the relationship I had with the boys even stronger. So my comment to anybody who's broken up with an ex you know, look at what they brought into the relationship. You know, if I look at my first wife when she left, uh, you know, she walked away saying that I wasn't good enough as a husband and everything else and I could focus on that. Or I focused on the fact that uh, I wouldn't have those three sons that I love and respect if it hadn't been uh, for our union. So therefore I could look at it from that point of view and completely change my attitude towards her, which therefore meant I could build a relationship with her outside the marriage uh, that the boys watched and all their mates watched as well, which was a bit of an education for all of them. And the reason for that was if the boys didn't respect their mother, 
they weren't so it wasn't going to be likely that they're going to respect women in their lives either and i didn't want them to go through my um history of broken relationships so i made sure that um they uh, respected their mother and i said my job was to teach them how to respect her her job was then to keep that respect which meant the way she behaved and what she said was all up to her that was her decision and by doing the right thing no, neither of us ever bagged each other and therefore the boys um, appreciated that because now they know both sides of their DNA is good. Wow. Yeah, and I, uh, we have similar uh, stories in that regard where uh, I'm, I'm divorced and uh, you know, my kids are with me on the weekends and uh, they have two different, you know, experiences, you know, her experience and my experience, but Whenever they ask me that question, like, why did you guys break up? Uh, I tell them the truth without telling anything about her that's negative. Like, I mm. never talk bad about her either. So I definitely agree with you in, in that regard. That, you know, it's none of their business. It's it. Well, really, you know, I think in a lot of cases, we just grow apart. You know, we're on a, a, a journey, all of us, until the day we die. And everything, every experience we have adds to who we are. And if our experiences are different, our interests start to change. We, you know... If I look at back over my life, I'm about to turn 70 next year. And so my life has traveled through a lot of different paths. And if I look back at when I was younger, say my 20s and 30s, and if I'd told back then this is what I'd be doing today, I would have been on the floor with my legs and feet up in the air laughing my head off. You know, you're having yourself on. I'd actually be getting a, um, a straitjacket for the person who told me. But your life changes through all these pathways. You never know where it's going to go. But the thing is to remember that, your partner may be here for a short time or they might be here for a long time. It, you don't know what's going to happen, but you take it as it comes. If you know how to read your partner and understand their personalities and you know how to talk to them in the way that they need to be spoken to, that gives you a better chance to keep that relationship longer because every trait we have has an upside and a downside. The upside of the traits are the things that excite us, that interest us in their, our partners. The downside is the, the way those traits then behave when they're under stress. So if you've got a partner who's very vibrant, she's got what I call dramatic appreciation, could be the man or the woman has a trait, they're very uh, expressive and dynamic and they're fun to be with. But when they do stress, they also do it with so much excitement as well. And to, you know, for somebody who's got the opposite trait, not to them or other people with the same trait as them, but to a person with the opposite trait, they look like drama queens. And so all of a sudden, the excitement from the upside of the traits starts to wane away because we get so used to it like if you were eating chocolate every day, it was your favourite food, and you ate it for every meal, it's not going to take long before you're going to lose uh, taste for that chocolate. So it's the same thing with the traits. And then we notice the downside of the traits. So we're there all the time. The other person didn't change. It's our perception, understanding of them changed. If we understand that, then we know how to talk to them so we can keep the excitement in the relationship, but we know how to address the downside of the traits when they fire up. Because somebody who's got that real expressive trait who really needs to know what's going on when you're stressed, it causes you to withdraw into a cave. And I'm looking at both of you because both of you have got the ascetic appreciation on your face, which means when you're stressed, leave you alone to sort out what you're working on. You'll pull back to your cave. Whereas if your partner has got the, uh, the more dynamic, uh, dramatic appreciation, they're going to want to know what's going on. Well, when they're doing stress, they're going to be very vocal about it. You guys only have one uh, statement to, or one question to ask them. Is it something that you want me to fix or do you just want me to listen? 
if they say they want you to fix it, then they know that it's something that you have the capabilities of fixing because you have the capabilities or it's something you screwed up in the first place. They want you to fix it. If they say, I just want you to listen, you know, they just need to vent and it's got nothing to do with you. If you care for your partner, you just sit there and let them vent and you don't take that emotional empathy on because you're sitting in a place of compassionate empathy where you're going, right, yeah, cognitive, I can see your pain. Emotionally, I can feel it. And hey, I'm just going to sit here and listen to you and that so you can work through it and uh, feel better. There's your cognitive um, or your um, compassionate empathy in the final stage, which us men do very well, but we don't know how to handle the emotional empathy. And that's one way to handle it. If our partner's got the emotion, getting emotional, just ask them if they want us to fix it or to listen. And then now if they say, listen, it's got nothing to do with you and just listen because you care for them. And it passes very quickly. But when you try and get away from it and don't want to listen, you're going to hear more of it. So yeah, this is where yeah. the beautiful part of reading people, you understand their traits straight away. You know how to circumvent those problems before they even arise. I heard that men are like naturally like fixers. And hmm. um, a lot of times when we go into the situation um, where a woman is speaking to us or like telling us what's going on, we go into like trying to fix it when a lot of times she doesn't want to be heard or whatever, uh, wants somebody to, to listen to what she's saying. That's exactly that, right. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, and that used to be a, a, a trait of most women and the more the aesthetic appreciation, how it feels inside, you know, leave me alone. I've got to fix the problem myself. Don't interrupt me. Asking me questions is going to make me fall further away. That was more a male trait. But over the generations, because of the different roles that we have now and gender equality and everything else, there are some of those traits switching over. I know a lot of women who are very aesthetic appreciation, and I know a lot of men who are very dramatic as well. So, but uh, you look at a couple and you know who's got what trait, you know how to advise them on how to talk to each other. You can also then look at their child, know the child's personality and teach them both to talk to the child in the same way, which means they both have to change differently to the way that they each like to be spoken to, which therefore gives them an understanding of their child, but usually gives them an understanding of each other as well. So when I work with parents and their children, there's quite often a bit of marriage counselling going on at the same time as well. And that then flows back into the workplace. So being able to read somebody and understand them circumvent so many problems in our lives. How do that same couple, let's say they're going through it and they get a divorce, how do they handle it then? The well, if they've gone through a divorce, say that, you know, it hadn't been right, they've been fighting and everything else, and they haven't got to this stage to understand each other, and they've actually got a divorce, they're probably going to be in that situation where there's going to be some resentment and everything else, because all of a sudden you've lost, you know, a good part of your life. There's big changes. And with the pressures of uh, a second household and things like that and, you know, trying to balance the time with the kids and getting everything done that you used to be able to do more effectively together. Because most people don't realise that, you know, when they're married, that divorce isn't that easy a place to go to. It has a lot of problems that go with it. So if they knew about the problems beforehand, they might think a little bit more before they do. But in that, if they're separated, then it's a case of this is where when I'm talking to them, it's, you know, okay, don't want to talk about each other, but tell me about your kids. You know, what's the connection with your kids? What do you want with your, for your kids' future? How important are your kids? And I really work on that side and point out to them then, right, 
if you can't get along with your ex, then your ch uh, children are the ones who are going to suffer. You know, to bag the, their part, the, your ex-partner over and over again is really another, another form of uh, child abuse in reality because you're telling that child half of them is no good. You're making them feel uh, less than worthy that their father or their mother, there's something wrong with them. And, you know, that has a detrimental effect on the child. It also has a detrimental effect on your relationship. So I talked to them about, well, what's the most important thing here? Is it your children? You know, what energy do you get or what uh, pleasure do you get out of fighting with your partner? So then taking them through that, but then also looking at their traits and teaching them how, well, this is how you can talk to each other. You know, at that point, they're able to have a better relationship. And as I say, that's virtually what I did with my uh, first wife. You know, and that was before I had these skills. I just realised that I needed to make those changes. But after I had those skills, uh, she came to me well, about uh, nine years ago when uh, my uh, oldest boy was about his mid-30s. And uh, she said, look, I need somewhere to stay for three months. You all got a spare room. Can I be a lodger? And I said, well, a lodger, separate lives for three months. She said, yes. Uh, she moved out three and a half years later. And everybody said, well, how in the world could you have the woman who walked out on you, you know, give her a, a, a room, give her a place to stay, make her life easier after she did that to you. And I said, well, three boys I love and respect. Couldn't have had those without her. So by doing that, I was able to uh, build that relationship further with her, but with my skills as well. And I have to say, I was a little bit naughty every now and then because I knew how to push a buttons, but I knew how to steer it away again. So I've practiced in my craft a little bit <laughs> uh, in that relationship. Uh, it's uh, co um, cohabitating a home. But that was for three and a half years. So I just go to prove that, you know, if I tell people to do things, I'm not going to tell them anything to do that I can't do or haven't done myself. So I only talk mainly from uh, life experiences, a lot of technical knowledge behind it, but most of it has been the school of life for me. And that's what I share with uh, raising boys, taking boys through their rites of passage and boys need to have men around them. And if their father's not there and if, uh, you know, say he is a, of a type that's probably better to be away from the kids, they still need men around them because the boys need that uh, male role model to understand how to be a man and how to respect women the right way. Because I realised that um, my boys, if they didn't respect their mother, it wasn't going to be any woman who'd be able to teach them that. It had to be a man. And I was the one with the biggest problem with her, you know, having walked out on me. So I had to be the one to, uh, to do that. And that's when you, you step up and take on your role, put your emotions aside and do what you have to do. Because my emotions for my sons and their futures were stronger than any emotions I had against her. So can you talk about that experience a little bit? Like what, um, like what led to her leaving you all? What was that, sorry? I was saying, um, can you talk about the, um, what led to her leaving you all or leaving the family? We'd, uh, she wanted to move to the country and we found a property. We were living in a caravan, so we're in tight quarters. Uh, when I first met her, uh, we were dating for a while and then she applied for uh, nursing for the public service, for uh, law, and there's also a senior and teaching. And uh, she sat for all the exams. She got nursing first of all, and then decided she'd become a nurse, but she passed on all the others. She's one of um, 10 children from a very academic family. And to uh, 
to marry me. You know, you think about um, not so much that I'm a you know, solid bloke, but more of a, not wasn't a pencil neck. I was a meathead as far as the, the uh, language would go because I was into sports. I was a surf lifesaver and uh, everything I was doing is more physical, whereas her whole family were academic. And she, um, you know, the role I was in, I'd moved through the ranks in uh, telecom, our national telephone carrier over here at the time. Got right up there. I was one of the uh, most successful, um, you know, younger senior uh, te- or principal technical officers at the time. And I had a, uh, a team that had the highest performance in Australia in all the dip- across all the different depots within the computer area, the, you know, all the modems we used to install and maintain. And so I was successful in that, but she wanted me to, she wanted to prove to her family that I had brains. And I'd sat for a, a little test in the old Reader's Digest magazines that used to float around. And I uh, went through a questionnaire for my IQ and I was in the top 5%. So she then wanted me to go to uh, Mensa and be tested there to see if I was in the top 2%. So she could feel that she had married, married somebody of academic uh, level to fit in with the family. The trouble was none of her family had any thought about that. I got on really well with a father who was a, a school teacher and um, but she was the one with this issue. And because I wouldn't, that was the beginning of the problems. And uh, after that, there were so many things she wanted to do. Um, we bought the property. We were living in a caravan. We were just about to uh, level the land. We just started leveling the land. And she decided she wanted to go and find herself, which meant uh, she went, uh, she was doing law just before we broke up. Then after we broke up, she became a primary school and secondary school teacher, extremely smart. Uh, but all of her life, she's always been looking for the next thing. She's never looked at what she's had. She's always looking for you know, dreams. And I used to go along with everything and go, well, you know, have a go at it. And I was always there supportive, but because she couldn't find what she wanted, she was uh, unhappy and she wanted to, uh, and as she said to me, I need to go and find myself. And I went, great. Well, the boys pretty much know where, know themselves. Take the sports car you get there faster and I'll keep the boys. And that was the extent of our conversation and off she went. So, um, but it can be, if you're sort of looking for reasons to why people, people might be saying, well, why did my partner leave? Sit back and think about it. You know, take yourself out of the equation as far as uh, what you, you know, you may think of being done wrong to you and all the rest of it. But think about, well, from the other person's point of view, what were they going through? What was in their mind? And I realised that uh, she was just totally lost and I can't hate a person for feeling lost. All I can do is feel some empathy for them. And if you were aware of that before the the breakup comes, well, you can do something about that. And by the way, you may find uh, better ways of communicating. Still doesn't mean you stay together. It might be that that relationship has just lost its love. And, you know, you just, uh, you know, the things that the other things in your life are more important. And that's virtually what they became for me. So once um, I started learning new skills and got involved in new things, my life has completely changed. So if I look back now and go, would I have uh, still been in a marriage knowing what I know today? Probably not. Because we're two different people. These things we just have to accept at times. And if we can accept it, there's a lot less sleepless nights. There's a lot less anger at the other person. There's a lot less feeling of failure in ourselves. And I just say to people, be a bit more gentle on yourselves. Sometimes relationships aren't meant to be long-term. 
how old were your uh, sons when she left? Uh, the youngest was four, the next uh, was 11, and the oldest was 12. Wow. Uh, so from, the time, from that time until they became men, um, like what, what was that experience like uh, being a single dad, raising your three boys by yourself? Well, while I was doing that, I was also, um, uh, I'd left, took redundancy from uh, telecom, our government uh, telecommunications, and started my own business with a few guys that used to work on my team. And uh, I've been working in uh, my own businesses ever since, and that was Christmas um, 91. And so from there, uh, I realised that, well, I was running the business, I was raising the boys, and, you know, I started dating. But the women I had around were always ones that uh, understood children. I wasn't looking for a replacement for their mother, but uh, I was looking for somebody who would get on with the boys and uh, had a number of relationships. I did finally remarry in the um, 1998. That was only a short marriage, though. And that was when I realised that um, boys and their rite of passage and some things that were happening in my life, that's when I um, uh, started looking at Aboriginal culture and understanding, bringing boys through uh, from uh, boyhood into manhood and then with other groups, how to help men to become better men. And so focus then moved on to uh, uh, those particular areas, helping males, etc. And the uh, profiling has just followed along with that as well. And now I also run the Campfire Project, originally a safe place for men to be able to come and tell their stories and then brought them into panel discussions uh, and at that point, I had women in the group from day one because I thought I didn't just want a men's group. I wanted a group where the men could uh, be heard by women and women would understand how men can speak when they felt safe to do so and see the qualities of men that they weren't seeing before. And for the men to realise that there are some good women out there and so they could get into conversations with them. Once I started the panel discussions and I had the women sending me personal messages going, we love these guys. We've never heard men talk this way before. Can we get involved? Now, what do we have to do? And I went, put your hands up. I've been waiting for it. Brought the women into the one-on-ones, brought them into the panel discussions. In August 13th uh, this year, it was three-year anniversary. We'd had over 300 one-on-one interviews or campfire chats, as I call them. And we've had over 150 panel discussions. Uh, first 60 or so were just with men, and then after that were with men and women. And um, not once have we had any bigotry, racism or sexism, and not once has anybody in those conversations been rude to anybody else, proving that social media is not our problem. It's the way we're using social media. And when you set an intent and you uh, get everybody to stick by it, you can solve a lot of problems. So I created the hashtag we Together. Because Me Too and Men Too, absolutely necessary uh, groups. They looked and found the problems that were going on, but they're usually finding problems. They're not going to find solutions. It's only when we come together, shoulder to shoulder, hashtag we together uh, came about and the Campfire Project was built on that. And so uh, men and women can have great conversations and have deep respect for each other as well. And that's what the men who have come into the group been able to do. At the same time, we support other groups like yours as well because we need all of those groups. You know, everybody's at a different point in their life. They need to go to a different uh, group to where they're at the time. But the whole thing is being able to network those groups so we can connect everybody. So having you guys come in and tell your stories as well and then 
talk about uh, the groups that you're running, and that invitation goes out to the whole world. Uh, if you're running a group, come in and tell us about it. On all the groups together, because if you're in the charge of a group and you're going through tough times, who do you turn to? Well, wouldn't it be great if you could go to somebody else who runs another group? So I'm a networker. You know, I, I believe in collaboration. So I believe in, I don't believe in competition. I believe that's a poverty mindset. Collaborations is abundance. The more I can bring people together, the end result is the, uh, we create uh, stronger communities and we break down all the different barriers. And everybody gets treated the, uh, uh, with respect. The good thing about the group, the oldest man I've interviewed is 99 years old. And the youngest to actually conduct an interview where he researched his own questions and interviewed his father for the best part of an hour was nine years old. So 90 years between the oldest and the youngest. And we've had every uh, different uh, gender uh, preference in the group. And everybody's totally welcome. I don't care about your culture, your uh, religion, your, your gender. Uh, as long as you're going to be respectful to everybody else in there, there's a home there for everyone. And that's what we've been doing. And I think once we do that, that's got to flow back to the way we treat our kids and back to our relationships. Everything's connected. So earlier in the conversation, you said that it, it takes a, a village to raise a child. Um, can you describe your village when you're raising your kids as a, as a single dad? Who, who was a part of your village? Well, one of the things I did was I had a few mates. I got some close male friends around um, and got them to uh, talk to the boys, especially with my second oldest. He didn't have much respect for police. He's a likeable larrikin. He was in trouble with the principal a lot at the school to the point that the principal liked him. Uh, but uh, when the principal knows how you have a coffee, you've got to go, okay, you know, been to the principal's office too many times. I'm an adult. This is getting ridiculous. But um, funny enough, he's now a federal policeman. But I introduced him to a mate of mine who was a policeman in plain clothes one day, and uh, they got on like a house on fire. They really had a great conversation. And it was by bringing people around, not telling the boys what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing, setting up situations they had conversations with people where they got their own uh, realisations. They came up with their own solutions. At the same time, I needed to have uh, women around so that they would um, grow up with that respect for women. And therefore, the women I had around, I had to treat with respect. And so if there's a woman who behaved in a way that I couldn't respect, well, obviously she left our, um, our, our, our community. And so it was always having the right people around. But uh, just before my 50th birthday, about two decades ago, I was a massage therapist and uh, my second uh, wife had taught me into doing the course. She was an aromatherapist. After we broke up, I put it on hold, but a few friends taught me into uh, getting the table out again. And when you've got engineering types coming to you and telling you they've had out-of-body experiences and where the extra hands come from and how did the table move and all this sort of stuff, I thought, this is bizarre. Anyway, I started uh, massaging again and I all of a sudden started attracting terminally ill patients. And some of them coming through a, uh, a, a herbalist in Newcastle uh, who was sending them to me, some of them were reversing their conditions and I needed some answers through some chance meetings, met an Aboriginal group, got invited out bush, uh, got put through a test on the first night. And I realised it was a test as I was going through it. They then invited me out, was going to be monthly but turned into weekly. And then a year later, 
I um, was invited to go out through my rite of passage, so tribal initiation for boyhood into manhood at the age of 50. And so that's where I understood uh, bringing the boys uh, through with the right men around them. When my youngest boy, who was 16 at the time, decided he wanted to follow me through, the elders said to me, you know, what do you want us to do? And I said, well, my job was to get him ready to, be, to go through. Your job is to, uh, you know, take him through that process into manhood. And they said, well, if that's our job, what's your job? And I said, well, you've got boys. And, that's, and they went, looked at me and went, yeah, got it. That's exactly right. That's what we're waiting to hear. Because mum nurtures the child and looks after and protects them away from all the pains and everything else when they're very young. As they get older, this is where usually the grandfathers and in tribal times the fathers to a lesser degree because they're out hunting, but more the uh, grandfathers, where they'd start to get that bit of uh, preparation for the tough love they were going to get when they go through tribal initiation around the age of 12, 14. And at that point, that was when the father would take them out to go through their rite of passage. The other men would then come along and for the next seven years, up to the age of 21, they go through that rite of passage into manhood. So they go through the initiation into manhood, but it's like being given an empty book with a pen. It's time for you to start filling it out. So you might be classed as a man, but that's when your learning starts. And then by the time you've got to 21, this is when you might have a partner and you know, uh, your wife, for instance, is now impregnated and pregnant. And for the next seven years, you're with the wiser men who teach you what it is to be a father, looking after the children and uh, being a, uh, looking after and protecting the um, community as well, the village. And so, and that's why your child then is going from zero to seven while you're doing that. Your mother, their mother is then nurturing them ready for the next uh, cycle for you to take over for your sons. And so boys take four cycles to grow up, whereas girls only take three cycles of the same seven-year periods. So 21 with girls, it becomes a mother. So mum, first of all, auntie's the uh, next phase, wiser women in the third phase. Boys, mum with the first phase protection, second phase with the grandfather and father getting ready for the rite of passage, third phase being taken into manhood, and the fourth phase, bringing it all together and becoming the father and the protector of their partner and the, um, the community. So boys, when we, at school, it's having a go at boys because the girls are growing up faster than the boys. Sorry, guys, they have to. Now, it's still got that cycle and it's just transferred into working and other things. So this is where if anybody, woman out there is uh, separated from her husband, you don't have to get into another uh, love relationship, but find some decent men. You know, some groups that the boy can go off to where he can start to learn the skills to respect women and become a better man. Because if we help men to become a man and not the man, and the difference there is we can see the people trying to be the man, like our politicians, our sporting stars, doing horrible and rotten things, being lousy human adults. But we've got somebody who wants to be a man, who wants to be the best version of himself, who else do you want around him? Other men and women who are doing the same thing then you've got a community. Otherwise, you've got competition. We're trying to be a man or a woman. And both the genders are doing it uh, in a lot of uh, ways, trying to be the, and therefore that's why we've got this problem with our society. So I say be the best version of yourself and get other people around you, both males and females, who are the best versions of themselves, and let your kids learn from that. Because kids don't listen to what we say, they watch what we do. And so if you're not the role model that you want them to be, to become, 
then they got much, not, haven't got much of a chance of getting there. So it's a big responsibility as us as parents. We love our kids and you're not getting on with your partner, well, bite the bullet to look at them in a different way and realise if you don't have a better relationship with them, you might as well uh, say goodbye to your kids because you'll lose their respect over time, you'll lose your connection with them and you'll lose that opportunity to have a lot more fun with them. Because while you're angry at somebody, it's like taking poison and hoping the other person will die. It doesn't work. Uh, so if you want to make your own life better, you know, find a way to look at your ex in a different way. doesn't mean forgiving them for what they've done, but being able to release yourself from the pain of hanging on to it. Because a lot of people, you say, well, if, you're, if you forgive the other person, uh, you'll be better, you'll be happier and uh, you'll be healthier. But a lot of people can't see the distinction that, you know, uh, forgiving the other person has got nothing to do with the other person. It's about letting go of the pain that you're carrying yourself. So it's really about forgiving uh, and taking it easy on yourself. And the best way to do that, find another way of being able to look at your partner, in a, your ex-partner in a different way. As I said, that's what I did with my uh, first ex. Yeah, it's powerful stuff there. Uh, mm. So, Alan, if my calculations serve me correct, that means you are going into the fourth phase. Or did you go through the accelerated program since you started at 50? Did you finish the four phases or uh, where are you at in that process? Well, definitely in the uh, grandfather stage as far as that support and everything goes. Uh, one of the things is that as a, a leader, your job is to make yourself redundant in whatever position you're in at the time. Yeah. If you don't, you're in the, you make yourself indispensable. You've just made yourself a jail, a prison. Now, the leader's job is to raise others up to be able to do what you're doing and hopefully do it better than you've been doing it, which therefore frees you to go and uh, expand. And isn't our job as, um, as fathers in helping our sons to grow up into a way in which they then can become the, um, uh, the leader in their family. And by the way, and I know some of the women might go, oh, you're trying to help men. Well, who are the recipients? If we help men to become better men, the recipients of that are their partners, their children, the community. That's why it's we together. We're not separate. So wherever we help one area, we actually help all areas. We need to step back from it and let go of the crap that we're carrying on or carrying around with us and just realise that everything we do impacts everybody else. So if I'm, it's like if I'm helping people in uh, doing charity work and I get to a point where I'm exhausted by giving them so much and I think I've got to keep giving to them, well, if I do, I'm robbing those people because I'm now no longer the best version of myself. I'm giving them something that's less than what I could give them if I got selfish and took a bit of time and stepped back from it, looked after myself and then came back with new energy and therefore give to them then. And why not? But if I step back, who's going to look after them? That's why we have a community. This is why we're not in competition with each other. This is why we tried to be a man and the women are trying to be a woman and then have the right people around them. This is why I keep saying we have a community because when somebody's tired, it's like if you're rowing a boat, you've got a couple of people rowing the boat, you might have somebody rowing it. When that person gets tired, the other person takes over the rowing. And that's the way our relationships with our partners should be as well. We're there to support each other and sometimes, you know, you might be, uh, you know, uh, or some, uh, some of the women have uh, you know, gone out and worked while their husbands have been doing uh, a degree. Once they finish their degree, 
that's when the man takes over and starts to uh, give back as well. So it's not a, I'll do this now if you pass me that, not like an exchange where you go and buy something, they put something in your hand as you put money in their hand. No, sometimes you give and then later on you get back. And if you're looking when you give and expecting to receive back, that's not going to work because you're actually, it's an expectation. You've already, I, if I help somebody, I've helped them because I wanted to help them. So in helping them, I've been paid. Emotionally, I have got my, uh, my payment. So then to turn around and say, I expect you now to help me, that's totally wrong. If I help somebody and they go, well, what if I can't help you? I go, well, tough. You know, you asked me to help you. I felt great because I would have helped you. Uh, if there's somebody else you can help in a different way, then you go and pay it forward to someone else. And that's where the community side of it comes in. But I got paid when I helped them. And then I might help somebody, somebody else might help me. And, you know, they might be a, um, uh, a roofer and they need someone to help them put up a roof. I'm a bit shaky on my feet these days. I'm not too uh, ha happy being on top of a six-foot stepladder either. You know, so I'm not going to be much help to them. I'm going to go, there's more chance of me falling off the roof and really screwing things up or putting my foot through the roof by accident. Uh, so you're better off getting someone else. So there's, you don't have to give back to the person that uh, gave it to you. If they expect it, they're giving it to you in the wrong, for the wrong reason. And that's, if we had that attitude, you know, there'd be less uh, arguments with people, less expectations. And so hopefully I'm moving into a place where there's a little bit more wisdom. Uh, I've had a lot of lessons that I'm pretty sure I didn't learn along the way properly. <laughs> I've repeated them over and over. So uh, hopefully I'm uh, learning more lessons than I've ever, you know, I've forgotten before. But at the same time, anybody who thinks you get to an age where you won't make mistakes, you don't grow and grow and move forward if you don't make mistakes. If you're not making a mistake, there's no growth. It depends on how you handle that. And by the way, people go, oh, I'm ashamed of the decision I made. Did you deliberately make a bad decision or did you make a decision based on the information you had? No, I made it on the information I had. Okay, then you regret that you didn't have more knowledge to make a better decision, but you have no right to be ashamed of making that decision. So people beat themselves up on that one regularly when they shouldn't. And they put themselves in a jail, self-imposed one, every time they do it. Sorry, guys, I've gone off on a number of different tangents in this conversation, but as I said before, everything's connected to each other. Yeah. And no, we're all connected agree, to each man. other. We're definitely uh, you know, soaking up the wisdom, man. Uh, definitely have a, uh, definitely a one-of-a-kind story. So, yeah, definitely uh, it's good to allow you to have that path forward to you know, speak on, on that experience. Yeah, and I wouldn't, have the, I wouldn't be able to speak about these things if I hadn't been through them. And I don't know what my life would have been like if I hadn't been through all the you know, so-called trials and tribulations that I've been through. You know, at the time, I would have liked not to have gone through them, but it depends on what we do with the experiences that we go through. Did we learn from them? How can we apply that to make our lives for ourselves and for others around us better? Because what they say, what you do for yourself dies with you, but what you do for others and for the community isn't always will be eternal. So the more that you realise you're part of the community and no matter who you are, just by being who you are, you have a massive impact. Every last one of us has a massive impact on our environment and our communities.
and it's up to us to decide what impact do we want that to be. No, this, this has been great, man. Um, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, I have one last question. I know we're getting close to, to time. Um, if you could give like advice to any, uh, well, any young parent, uh, what would it be? I've always found that the more that you can understand your children, well, number one, realize that your children, when they push you and everything else, they're not out to break you. They're just trying to see if you will hold. If Put boundaries in place. Helicopter parenting is really a form of abuse because where you're you know, wrapping them in cotton wool and everything else, what happens when you're not there? What happens when they go out to the real world? Giving children trophies just for turning up and if they've got no expectations uh, beyond that, when they go to the real world, they're going to get through a lot of pain and they won't have had any of the, because uh, when we're there as a parent, we can nurture them, we can protect them, we can balance, you know, hold them in a safe place while they go through those things. So we don't stop them from going through it, but we nurture them through it so that they learn from it and it improves their quality of life. So put boundaries in place for your kids because they need those boundaries, otherwise they get lost and they will resent you for not putting boundaries in place. So I always say to parents, the more you can read and understand the way your child needs to take information in, how they like to uh, process that information, if you can change the way that you like to be spoken to to match the way that they want to be spoken to, you will have a better and stronger connection with them. Your relationship will be so much better as well because now you've got a child that is not fighting you, he's not giving you a hard time, at the same time, you're watching them grow and flourish fast because I don't think any parents out there have children so that they can uh, beat them up. We have children and we have great pride in them growing up and, uh, and doing great things. And a lot of uh, us fathers like to see our kids achieve greater than what we achieve, which is back to what I talked about in leadership. Again, back to you know, making yourself redundant by raising other people up. I've got three sons, they're chalk and cheese, and I jokingly say I'm still trying to figure out what number three is. Uh, but um, the three of them are uh, completely different to each other, having their own skills, and they're three young men that I love and respect. And I'm uh, proud of what they've created in their lives and what they've done. So as a father, you know, this is what I've, I've, I think I've uh, got to the pinnacle of um, uh, what a father really wants to be with that relationship and that's been through the boys never been pressured into what uh, I thought they should do. Now, as I keep saying to parents, remember that your job, you're not a sculptor and you're not a carpenter. Your job is not to turn your kids into something that you think they should be. Your job is a gardener. Your job is to nurture them and help them grow into the best version of themselves. If you do that, you will then uh, be proud of them. They will love you and be proud of you as well. And you know, helping them to get a, a, a job where they make a lot of money, if they're not going to be happy in their job, yes, again, they need to make a lot of money to pay for the medication for their mental health issues that they're going to get. Right. So help them to uh, find the job that matches their personality and uh, be happy in the work they're doing. Therefore, they'll be happy in their relationship. They're happier in their work they're doing. They're also more profitable for the business they're working for. There's less angst at work. There's less uh, problems at home. They get on better with their partner and therefore their kids get the benefit of that as well. And it keeps saying everything is connected. It's all we together. Yeah, yeah for sure. Man, this is uh, one of my favourites. So I, I would definitely nominate this for the Hall of Fame. 
Dr. John, <laughs> what, do you, what do you say, man? We're going to put this in the, in the rafters. Oh, yeah, for sure. This is Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Man, Alan, uh, thank you for you know, uh, your story. It's definitely uh, been great hearing more about what you, you know, have been through and uh, what made you who you are today. So Thank uh, you. Yeah, for sure. So, Dr. Young, did you have anything else before we wrap? Oh, no, no other questions. Um, again, I just want to thank you as well. Um, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you for joining us and sharing sharing your story with us in the audience. Thank you very much. And yeah, what you guys are doing as well, appreciate that. It's We need more uh, people there helping others to find their way. I don't think it's a case of us telling other people what to do. Like when I uh, have a campfire chat with somebody and they tell me their story, I can sit there for 45 minutes without saying a word. And after you notice the way I can talk, that can be a bit of a challenge. But no, our job is to hold their space so that they can express themselves in a way that they never had the chance to do before, treating them with respect and without judgment. And uh, that's the best way you can help somebody in their own therapy. And so, but then uh, for them to know that, hey, okay, this is a particular part of my life. I need some support right now. And uh, for men to uh, who have got... Um, uh, children, whether they're living with them or they're separated from their children, they need groups like um, uh, Welcome to Fatherhood to uh, help them. So I appreciate all the groups out there that are uh, that might be listening in. Come and join us in the Campfire Project and then come and tell us what you're trying to do so we can share that with the world as well. Let other people know about you. Yeah, I, I can say I'm a Campfire alum. I've, I've, I've been on the Campfire. It's, it's great. <laughs> Yes, yes, Sir Royce here, and I want to thank you again for listening to WTF Interviews. Leave a review as it helps more people like yourself receive the message. Also, consider donating to Welcome to Fatherhood. It's a nonprofit that myself and Dr. Raheem Young created to help dads showcase their superpowers to the masses. You can do that by going to WTFatherhood.org. Again, gratitude and be well. You already are.